Good morning to all of you joining us on this last Sunday in September. Welcome to all who are watching on live stream or Facebook Live or who will be watching our podcast later on. Greetings to you who may be watching from Bentley or Arbor Trace or from cooler weather up north. We trust that you will snuggle up in your living space and worship with us in the comfort of your home. Dr. Dawson Taylor is on vacation this week, but he sends you his greetings and wishes everyone a fantastic week ahead. Part of that has to do with some wonderful opportunities that are just coming up. First is the publication of our new quarterly journal entitled On Eagle's Wings. This highlights the ministries of Naples United Church of Christ and offers you a calendar of the enrichment opportunities coming up this fall. We hope that you'll look for a copy in your mailbox soon, and an electronic copy will be posted to our website this coming Wednesday. A special thanks to Megan for the great work she has done in putting this together as our director of programs. Next, we invite you to participate in our upcoming Clergy Roundtable, which resumes on Wednesday, October 14th. We will be covering each chapter in this book, Forgive to Live, by Dr. Dick Tibbetts. The subtitle of this book is How Forgiveness Can Save Your Life. We do have some copies of this book here at church, and you can order one for $20, which includes mailing costs. To get a copy, just call our church office and talk to Chelsea or submit a request at books at naplesucc.org. Two more items. First, next Sunday is a communion Sunday, and we will continue our Cans for Communion program to collect food for Grace Place. That's this coming Friday from 9 in the morning to 11 o'clock out at the portico. You can also pick up your communion elements as you drive through. A special thanks to the Board of Missions and Outreach and to the Board of Deacons for helping us with this wonderful service. Finally, a special note from Sandy Goldstein down at our Bargain Box thrift store. Tomorrow, that's Monday, there will be a special one-half price sale going on, and I understand there are some tremendous bargains just waiting to be discovered. So whether you are shopping or donating, we invite you to head on down to the Bargain Box and support their good work. At the conclusion of worship today, you can join us for our virtual gathering place. Simply click on the virtual gathering place button from your Saturday night e-blast. Or if you didn't receive one, please call our church office now at 239-261-5469. And we will send you a link. All we need is your name, email, and a phone number. And now, as a mission-driven congregation, let us center our hearts and minds as we continue in worship. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever Googled the word love? You have to be careful with that one because you might end up in places you never really intended to go. If you do, you're going to find a lot of websites. I once heard the number to be 1.99 billion. 
Yes, you heard me right. I had to look at the zeros a few times to uh, be sure that I was right. I don't know if that's really true or not, but here are the few that I found. I love dogs.com. Well, that one makes sense to me. Then we get to I love cats.com. Although that one is a plea to spay or neuter your cat. And then we have ilovecheese.com, and I thought of all my Wisconsin friends. But my personal favorite is this one, lovetest.com. On this site, you can take the love calculator test. You just type in your name and your partner's name, and it gives you the odds of your relationship lasting. I don't know how they do it. I, I haven't asked David to do it quite yet, but I wonder what we get after 39 years of marriage. The interesting aspect is that on all of these sites, love is seen as an entirely human endeavor. But the love that we hear about in Scripture, I think, is so much more. Well, in English, there is only one word for love. In Greek, there are four distinct ones. The first is storge. That's the natural affection that unites family members, although sometimes I'm wondering about that one. We don't really choose storge. It exists because of our connections. Now, the second word is eros. Many of you have heard of that one. This is romantic love based on passion and feeling. But its weakness is that it's often fleeting. The third kind of love is philia. It's based on common interests or friendship. But there is that most excellent form of love, and that is agape. This is love without conditions, love that sacrifices itself one for the other. This was a word that we used, was used sparingly by Greek writers in the day, but it was used widely by the writers of the New Testament. Agape came to be understood as the unmerited love that God shows each one of us. The early Christians experienced a different kind of love in both their relationship with God and their relationships with other people. And they used that understanding to define this kind of love. Agape is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in the scripture that David just read. It was a love that had been defined by God's love reaching out in Jesus Christ. It was a love that included those who didn't think they deserved it, a love that put the interests of other people first, and a love that forgave lavishly and allowed new beginnings. One of the things that I rediscovered this week was that in the Greek, love is most often a verb. Our English translations often show love as a noun. But in Greek, this agape love is active and engaged. Agape is focused more on doing than on describing 
or talking or feeling. Love is a verb. William Batterson, in his book, Wild Goose Chase, wrote this. When Christianity turns into a noun, it becomes a turnoff. Christianity was always intended to be a verb, and more specifically, an action verb. The title of the book of the Acts of the Apostles says it all, doesn't it? It is not the book of ideas or theories or words. It's the book of Acts. If the 21st century church said less and did more, maybe we would have the same kind of impact the first century church did. Paul is reminding us that our love for others comes from the overflow. Our problem is not that we don't love God enough. I think it begins with not really believing that God loves us. Loving fully and authentically can only really happen when we realize that every bit of the love we offer comes from the author of all love. If we could begin to grasp just a little bit of how much God loves us, we could discover a new power in the way we relate to others. What if we really believed and acted on the fact that love is a verb? Fred Craddock, who is a great preacher, once said these words that I often quote in wedding ceremonies. He said, we think that giving our love is a little like taking $1,000 and saying, here's a gift for you. Isn't it amazing? But the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We listen to a neighbor's troubles instead of thinking, oh, just get over it. We go to a committee meeting. We give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. But the scripture passage does not gloss over the difficulties of love. Paul says if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Love, love often cost us something. 
Paul used if-then language. If you love, then this is what it looks like in the nitty-gritty of real life. And in these days, we are all immersed in the nitty-gritty of real life, having difficulties loving some people. A young Harvard student named Kent Keith penned some words in the 1960s, calling them the paradoxical commandments. Over time, they've been quoted by countless people, politicians, civic, religious leaders, business people, students. They've been edited and rearranged, but the point is still the same. Love gets expressed most in loving actions, and sometimes to love means to do it despite the outcome. When we love, when we are kind, when we are compassionate, we are never guaranteed that our love will be reciprocated. But Jesus wanted us to know that the mark of being his disciple was focused on love as a verb. The paradoxical commandments are often entitled anyway. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Keep building anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you try to help them. Help people anyway. The good you do today, people will forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best that you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For when we live out of the overflow, showing our love in concrete acts of service, lives begin to be changed even when we can't see it, and even our own. I grew up in California, and I heard this story a long time ago about Two families who discovered the power of love as a verb. One family had emigrated from Japan at the turn of the last century and settled near San Francisco, near where I lived. They had established a nursery business growing roses. The other family were naturalized citizens who had come to the U.S. from Switzerland. They, too, marketed roses And both families became modestly successful in their businesses. For almost 40 years, the two families were neighbors. And then the sons took over those farms. 
But on December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Although the rest of the family were United States citizens, the father of the Japanese family had never been naturalized. It was not long before the Japanese family were forcibly transported to a barren landscape internment camp in Granada, Colorado. In that turmoil, his neighbor made it clear that he would look after his friend's nursery. You would do the same for us, he told his Japanese friend. A full year went by, then two, then three. While the Japanese neighbors were in internment, their friends worked in their greenhouses. The children worked before school and on Saturdays. The father's work often stretched to 16 or 17 hours a day. And then one day, the war was finally over. The Japanese family got to finally board a train for home, wondering what would be left of their home and their nursery. The family was met at the train depot by their neighbors. And when they got to their home, the whole Japanese family simply stared. There was their nursery, intact, neat, prosperous, and healthy. So was the balance in the checkbook handed to the Japanese father. When they walked inside their home, there on the dining room table was one perfect rose, a symbol of love in action. I've thought a lot about this scripture this week. So I've been wondering if you would join me in a challenge this week. I want to challenge you to do something unselfishly for another without any need for recognition. This is a perfect moment in our culture these days to discover that love is, in fact, a verb.